7 through 16, as we conclude what has been one of the thornier sections of uh, the book of Romans, I think Romans chapter 9 perhaps has the most uh, or the best reputation as being a source of disagreement amongst believers, but Romans chapter 2 verses 5 through 16 really uh, do occasion, I think, the most disagreement among believers, and we've seen part of the reason why that is. Uh, Paul is interacting with works, the place of works in the life of the believer, the absence of works in the life of the unbeliever, in, uh, in what is his most, lang- most lengthy work on justification. And it's interesting that that would come first and not last, although it does come last as well. So it, it occasions some disagreement. But now uh, we conclude that section, beginning in verse 11, for there is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without law will will also perish without law and as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God but the doers of the law will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law these although not having the law are a law unto themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts and uh, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, as I've just said, there is indeed a measure of uh, perplexity by uh, believers as to these, or among believers, as to these verses. And we ask, O God, that we might approach them once more, the spirit of humility And that we might, well, that I might be able to set them forth plainly in such a way that perhaps they seem a little less perplexing and our difficulties as to, well, the whole question of justification, law, judgment, works, all of that would 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 seem to seem to be uh, of of one piece and not of many conflicting pieces. We ask you, O Lord, in other words, to enlighten your church and to set our hearts and our consciences at ease through the preaching and the reading of your word. Amen. As we come now to the Apostle's statement in verse 11, again, I've stated that is the key verse. It's the verse that you find in the essence of the law, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, that there is no partiality with God. That is a kind of summary statement of what Paul has been saying. And really, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, verse 11 is not just a summary of what has gone before, but also a conclusion uh, to those verses. Everything, and even really what he was saying about the Gentile in verse or chapter 1 as well. Everything then that he has said about the Jew and the Gentile with respect to God's judgment and the justice of his judgment and his wrath against all men supports the assertion of verse 11, which is again a statement of his justice, that there is no partiality with God, which means very simply, uh, and, and, and you saw how it was put this way in Deuteronomy 10, that God doesn't take a bribe. I think that's a helpful explanation, actually. Uh, but the way I would put it is that God is not subject to favoritism when it comes to the application of his justice. He doesn't look at one and say, well, because you're a Jew, my justice doesn't apply to you. You are granted immunity. And then at the same time, and this is in reality the view of the Jew, and let us be careful lest it become our view as well, the idea that for the Gentile, 
Not only does he have to experience the justice and the judgment of God, but he gets an extra portion. That God is extra severe with him because he is a Gentile and not a Jew. That is the kind of distorted view of justice. Uh, none for me, more for you. That Paul is contending with here. It was the particular error of the Jews. But let us be careful as we read. Just as we read in chapter 1. Now as we read of the Jews in chapter 2. That we are not guilty of the same error. And the error is dispelled. By this simple assertion. A quotation of the Old Testament. That God is not subject to partiality. His justice is always the same for everyone. He is equitable and he is fair in the exercise of his justice. So much so that looking to the final day, what Paul calls the day of wrath, it is this fact about God's justice, especially that will become apparent. Again, the justice of his wrath or or how does he put it in verse five? The revelation of the righteous judgment of God. On that day, it will become apparent. And on that day, when it is revealed against the sinner, it will be revealed in such a way that no sinner will be able to say, but Lord, why such severity? Why such wrath? In other words, no one will be able to contend on that day against the righteousness of his justice as he reveals and pours out his wrath upon the sinner. But it's important to see. Well, let me just say one more thing. To conclude the prior thought, what will become clear on that day, in other words, is what he says in verse 11. And that is that there is no partiality. There is no favoritism with God, only justice and always justice for all. But it's important to see why Paul makes that assertion here. You see how it sums up the prior thought. And it is the implied thought throughout chapter 2 up to verse 11. And so he might have said it anywhere. He might have said it in verse 1. But he's especially concerned to emphasize it here. And this is what I want to underline. In reality, it had to come here. In verse 11, not at verse 1. Because of what he had just said in verses 8 and 9. Let me clean my glasses. He had just said something in verse, uh, excuse me, verses nine and ten, something which, in fact, uh, I, I ignored entirely last time. I don't know if you noticed it and you might have wondered, well, what is he going to say about that? Well, I'm going to say something about it now. At the end of each statement, he is stating again the righteousness of God's justice. Uh, he is expounding in verses seven through ten. On the phrase in verse 6 that the last day will involve a rendering to each according to his life again uh, or according to his deeds. Again, another statement of the equity of his justice. But he says uh, at the end of, of each of those two verses, verses 9 and 10, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says it twice. And about that I said nothing last time. And if you think about it. That statement in the midst of this discussion actually has something of an odd ring to it. It would almost seem as though Paul is at odds with his own main idea or his own main point. In the very passage where he is asserting the lack of partiality with God, he states the priority of the Jew. 
or the privileged position of the Jew after all in the application of justice. And how are we to understand this? To the Jew first, also the Greek, verse 9. To the Jew first, also to the Greek, verse 10. After that, he says, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Well, let's look at what he says first in verses 9 and 10. And then we'll come to verse 11, 12 and following. In verse 9, he assigns the priority to the Jew, but it is a priority of condemnation. He says this, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Well, I think we could agree that that is certainly a priority, but it's not a positive one. Paul is saying that the Jew, because of his position and his privilege as those who possess the law of God, were actually held to a higher standard. And that his condemnation would be more severe because he sinned against greater light. Greater light than the Gentile possessed. But on the other side, he asserts the priority. Also means that should the Jew make use of his privilege, that the rendering of reward would also be assigned to him first. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he follows that up again. Verse 11, four, there's no partiality with God. Is he, is he at odds with himself or is he stating the same truth in verse 11? Well, let me say something else about this idea of, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, the priority of the Jew. We need to remember that Paul has already said this in verse 16 of chapter 1 where he summarizes the gospel. He again assigns the priority to the Jew. He says, uh, let, me, let me just read it lest I misquote him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so this isn't a new thought. This is a common thought uh, in Romans. It is a central thought. In the preaching of the gospel, just as in the rendering unto each on the last day, there is a relative priority of the Jew. His place comes first. In the case of the preaching of the gospel, it was literally preached to him before the gospel went to the Gentiles. But however we are to understand this relative priority, we can at least be sure that it does not mean what the Jew thought it to mean which was that he was exempt from the justice of God. In fact, he went a step further and said because of that, he was exempt from any need of the gospel. He didn't need the gospel preached to him. That's what the Jew thought of his priority. And Paul is certainly saying that wasn't the case. It is in a context of the equity of God's judgment and the universality of salvation preached to all that he assigns the priority of the Jew. Did you see how the Jew distorted that? Well, the real meaning then... I would say becomes even clearer in verses 12 through 16, where he interacts with the Jew and then the Gentile. Verses 12 through 16, after stating or summarizing again in verse 11, there's no partiality with God. He applies his justice alike to all. He offers salvation alike to all, to everyone. But after saying to everyone, he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, the first thing I want to say about these verses, verses 12 through 16, which again are an exposition of this idea, the position of the Jew, the position of the Greek, with respect to the principle there's no partiality with God, is the general structure of verses 12 through 16, which you have to, you have to see this, and you can actually see it. I don't know if all of your translations uh, have this, but I'm going to try to make it clear, and hopefully you'll see it in yours. You have the main statement in verse 11, which he sets out to prove and illustrate in verses 12 through 16. And he does this. 
he proves his assertion in verse 12 and verse 16. It's evident, in fact, that what he says in verse 12 is is uh, paused for a moment and then concluded in verse 16. And, and if you read it, it actually uh, it comes out that way. As many as have sinned without the law will all perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Pause, then conclude verse 16. In the day, they will be judged by the law in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ and so on. And many of your translations indicate this is in fact the case by placing verses 13 through 15 in a parenthesis. And so verses 11, 12, and 16 contain the main thought, and then verses 13 through 15 insert a secondary thought where he addresses certain objections with regard to each class, the Jew and the Gentile. Look first at verse 12. There you notice Paul again dividing men into two classes. And he does so here with regard to the law and their respective failure to keep it. As many have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as, as many as have sinned in the law, or I would translate it slightly different, under the law will be judged by the law. Two classes of men. One side sins without the law. That's the Gentile. The other side sins while being in or under the law which is the Jew. But you see, both sin. That is not the question. Whether all men are sinners is already proved beyond doubt at this point, although Paul will be at greater pains to prove it further still in the verses to come. But here he is simply addressing the question of how justice is applied to each class respectively, given their relative position to the law. One has it or is under it, and the other is without it. And will justice take into account that fact with respect to each? And the answer, by the way, is yes. He concludes the thought by saying one side will perish without the law, the Gentile, and the other will be judged by the law they possess, the Jew. And so again, we see that the outcome will will correspond to the life that was lived. John Murray has a very helpful comment on this verse, verse 12, when he says this. The fact that there is no respect of persons with God, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11, is confirmed and illustrated in verse 12. While it is true that there is no respect of persons with God, it is also true that he has respect to the different situations in which men are placed in reference to the knowledge of his law. Mart Lloyd-Jones makes a similar comment when he simply says, they shall be judged as they are. The sinner who didn't have the law will be judged without it. The sinner who was under it will be judged by it. In other words, what you notice is that God takes into account the situation of each in the application of justice. And specifically with respect to their relation to the law, the law of Moses. He lets neither off. He doesn't let the Gentile off because he didn't possess the law of Moses. Neither does he let off the Jew because he did possess it. But in either case, their position with respect to that law will be taken into account because anything less than this would be unjust. If God were to judge the Gentile as though he were under the law, as though he were a Jew when he wasn't, would be injustice. It would be the very thing that I was saying the Jew thought that the Gentile gets an extra measure. 
No, Paul says he who sinned without the law will perish without the law. Just as he, on the other hand, the Jew who possessed the law will be judged by that law. We have, therefore, again, just as is stressed in verse 11, our main our main verse in verse 12, an expression of God's justice and his equity and his fairness in the application of the of his justice to each. Which, as I have said, and this is the only way justice could be just, takes into account man's situation in judging him. God, as Lloyd-Jones says again, judges man as he is. Not as another man is, but as he is. There is, to put it yet another way, a symmetry and a correspondence between the situation of man and his experience of judgment on the day of wrath. Again, he who sinned without the law will perish without the law. He who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Symmetry, correspondence, fairness, equity, a judgment, Paul says, verse 2, which is always according to truth. It is always fair, it is always true, it is always just. Such that, again, there is no sinner who will be able to say on the last day, Oh God, why such severity? No, on that day it will be perfectly plain. But as we come to the parenthesis, the secondary thought, which begins in verse 13 and goes through verse 15, before uh, he finishes the thought of verse 12 and verse 16, we, uh, we find that Paul deals with each class. The one without the law and the one under the law, only he takes them in the opposite order now. He takes up the position of the Jew first in verse 13. And then he deals with those who are without the law, the Gentile or the Greek in verses 15 and 16. And he does, or 14 and 15, excuse me, he does this. He enters or inserts this parenthesis in order to answer a key objection with respect to each class. Now, the objection of the Jew comes first. The objection of the Jew was this to what Paul was saying, that those who judged under the law or, excuse me, sinned under the law would be judged by the law. The the Jew took exception to that. He said that the Jew was one uh, as someone who possessed the law, a law that he was privileged to hear since his childhood, obviously made it impossible that he should ever be subject to the wrath of God. The Jew was not someone who was interested in denying the justice of God, but surely he would say, Paul, you misunderstand God and his revelation to the Jews as one of covenant faithfulness and love. How could you read the Old Testament, Paul, and conclude that the Jew, like the Gentile, was subject to the wrath of God and that he would be judged by the very law that God gave to him as his unique privilege? And so the thing that made the Jews stand out, not only in Scripture, but in his own mind, was the fact, stand out, that is, in contrast to the Gentile. The thing that indicated most clearly his special position as one of favor favor and, and privilege with respect to God was his possession of the law. He was with the law. The Gentile was without it. And from this he deduced that he enjoyed God's favor and that he could not become recipient of God's wrath. And, and there was something to this. This is not an ultimate consideration. But we've seen this in the evening series, those of you who have been there, that uh, what Moses was doing and God through Moses was giving Israel the law. And there was something uh, distinctly wonderful about this. 
It expressed once more Israel's unique privilege and special relation to God. And, you know, Paul will even say this. He has no interest in denying this fact. Chapter three, verses one and two. What advantage has then the Jew or what profit of circumcision much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God? This was the Jew's greatest privilege. Paul has no interest in denying that. And yet, true as it was, it was still possible to misunderstand and to make too much of it. Again, to make it the ultimate consideration, which is what the Jew was doing. And so Paul says this, making a crucial distinction, just as he had done in verse 12. So he makes a further distinction now with respect to the one class, those under the law. He says this, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. In other words, what Paul is doing is taking the law, the very law which Israel boasted in. And he is describing things from the vantage point of the law. He's speaking the language of the Jews. Yes, but what did the law say, Paul asks? Did the law ever suggest? Now, you have your your Old Testament. You can read it for yourself. Did the law ever suggest that merely possessing it or merely hearing it, which Paul says, the hearers of the law, which the Jew had done since his childhood, would lead to the sinner's justification in the eyes of the lawgiver, who is God. Where did the law ever say that? The answer is it never did. In fact, it said the opposite. And the Jew of all people, those who possess the law and who heard it from their childhood, should have known that. They should have been familiar with the contents and the dictates of the law upon those who possess it. They should have known that the law as law That is, as commandment, commands conformity and nothing less can be considered obedience. In other words, the question which Paul is asking, again, from the standpoint of the law and even behind that, that of the lawgiver, who is God, who will be considered just, but the one who keeps the law, not the one who hears, you see, that does not satisfy the law. The law will not justify the man who has not works, but only hears. The law demands not only that you are aware of it or familiar with its contents or teach it to your children as the Jew had done. But it demands that you live up to the standard it contains total conformity, nothing less. Only he who does this keeps the whole law will be justified in God's sight by the law. Not the one who hears, but the one who does the law is just in God's sight. Now, it's important here to realize that Paul is not suddenly suggesting that justification was meant to come by the law. He says the opposite. In fact, many times, not only in Romans, but in Galatians and in other places, he is not elaborating on the doctrine of justification. He is elaborating on the doctrine of condemnation and judgment. And in doing so. He is interacting with the Jew who made their boast in the law and felt that their possession, their hearing of the law was enough, that that in itself was an indication, a clear indication of their favor with God and their exemption or immunity from God's justice. And yet we could rightly ask of the Jew as we're able to read the Old Testament scriptures along with they, how was it that they had failed to consider this crucial point? Again, from the stand, uh, the vantage point of the law itself, the very thing in which they boasted, that the very law they possessed would 
be the standard by which a holy God would judge, uh, judge the Jews. As Paul had just said in verse 12, as many have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is the standard. Have you lived up to it? That's the question. And because you have it, which you very well know you haven't, well, that will become the very standard by which you are judged and condemned on the last day. It's so obvious. It's so straightforward. And yet they had missed it. They had actually thought that this would become the means of their justification, not their doing of the law again, but their possession of the law. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 10, verse uh, verse five, lamenting the tragedy of the Jews. He says. Well, uh, actually, let me let me begin in verse one, verses one through five. He says of the Jews, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall uh, live by them. They were looking for righteousness in the wrong way. And so they were blinded not only to the reality of the law, but to the reality of their need for the gospel. And the same thing is true to this day, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That the reason the Jew will not listen to the preaching of the gospel and he will not tolerate this assertion that he is under wrath and therefore needs salvation in Jesus Christ is precisely because of his misunderstanding along these lines. He had failed to ask the the simple question with respect to the law. Who has done the law? Certainly not myself. That's what he ought to have said. And yet, as we'll see in the next passage, verses 17 to the end of chapter 2. That the Jew, we see this as well in the Gospels very clearly, the cardinal sin of the Jew was his hypocrisy. But come now to the Gentiles in verses 14 and 15, where Paul now answers the objection with respect to them. Again, he says those who sinned without the law will perish without the law. And there's a very natural objection that arises here, which might even occur to us. And it may have even occurred to you in the, in, in the course of my exposition thus far. And that is the fact uh, simply that it isn't fair to condemn the Gentile by a law they did not possess. You see, if the law is the standard by which men are judged, then where is the justice in condemning a man who did not possess that law? He was without the law, Paul just says. Verse 12, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, summarizing this objection that Paul is answering, is it right that a man should be condemned by a law which he's never heard of? And we see how Paul answers this admittedly natural objection here in these two verses, verses 14 and 15, before he concludes the thought of verse 12 and verse 16. The objection is seemingly valid on the basis of another statement, chapter 4, verse 15. He says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. And therefore, we could take it one step further. There is therefore no condemnation. And you might think, and some have even suggested that those who've never heard of the law, never possessed it, are therefore saved. They're therefore justified. They will not be judged by law they did not possess. Think of the man who's never heard of it. What about that man? What will his experience of judgment be? Will he be acquitted merely because he never heard the law? Well, it is undoubtedly true. What Paul says in chapter 4 verse 15 is right. That where there is no law, there's no transgression. And as I say, take it a step further, there's no condemnation. 
If it is true in an ultimate sense that the Gentile or anyone possessed no law, then it is also true that God would be unjust to judge him by a law he did not possess. Or to put it another way, where is the basis of man's condemnation if not the law? And if he was without law, as Paul says in verse 12, why then does he perish? Where is the justice in that? It's a very uh, natural question to ask. And it's one that Paul answers uh, very definitively in verses 14 and 15. When Paul says that the Gentile was without law, he did not mean that in an absolute sense. Of course, if the Gentile was totally devoid of the law, if he lacked any sense of right and wrong whatsoever, then the injustice of his condemnation would be apparent. God would be unjust to damn him. But when Paul speaks of the Gentile in verse 12, very generally, as one who was without the law, it is just a generic statement of his, uh, his position as a Gentile and not a Jew. The Jew was one under the law, the Gentile wasn't. The fact is that God did not give the law to the Gentiles in the same way he gave it to the, uh, uh, to the Jews. And so with respect uh, to Moses in particular, in the giving of his law, that was something that was meant for the Jew and not the Gentile. Therefore, the Jew was under it and the Gentile was without it. But certainly Paul did not mean, and, and he clears this up in these two verses, to assert that the Gentile was himself devoid of law, that he had no notion of right or wrong. Indeed, you remember, he's already said in verse 32 of chapter 1, speaking of the Gentiles, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They know it. They know the difference between right and wrong. They know that those who practice sin deserve damnation. And yet they do them. And so it's clear that the Gentile did in fact some sense of the law, even though the law wasn't given to him. And even though he was not under the law as a covenantal administration. But the question is how? How does the Gentile become aware of the law if not through revelation and special revelation? I mean in particular through the books of Moses. Well, the assertion of these two verses, verses 14 and 15, is simply that the Gentile who does not possess the law by special revelation is still by nature. And that phrase occurs in verse 14. By nature, he is aware of the law in its general form, not in its special form, but its general form, which Paul calls the works of the law. And this is evident in three main ways. The first is seen in the fact that he still does the things of the law, verse 15. Sorry, not the works of the law, but the things of the law. I misspoke a moment ago. He does the things of the law, the stuff of the law. The general character and form of the law is found in some measure in his life. He doesn't steal. He doesn't rob another. He doesn't uh, murder. He doesn't commit adultery. That sort of thing. The things of the law are still somehow found in his life. This man who's never heard the law of Moses. He seems almost, if you look at his life, to have kept the law. And how do you explain that? Well, it's because he possesses the law in another form. Not in the commandments of Moses, but by nature. He has some generic awareness or consciousness of the contents of the law in himself. Again, it is true he does not have the Ten Commandments codified in Scripture. 
Yet by his life, he, gen- he, he, he demonstrates this general awareness of the law and its contents and the things of the law. And that is because verse 15, Paul says, the work of the law is written on his heart. In other words, in his heart, in his basic humanity, he is aware of God's justice and his ways, which we already saw again in chapter 1, verse 32. He knows that those who do such things deserve to die, and yet he still does them. He finds the law in himself. He doesn't have the exact or the complete picture. He misses a great deal of the law, especially the first table, the first four commandments. And yet the amazing thing is that so many of the things of the law still find their way into his life because he possesses an inward awareness of the general contents of the law in his heart. There remains in him a vague remnant of the Imago Dei, the image of God. But the second way uh, that the law finds its way to him, spoken of in verse 15, is the conscience bearing witness. Along with the law in his heart, there is the conscience adding its testimony. And so this is seen in addition to the law upon their hearts. It is the conscience which lends its approval, bearing witness to the law that they possess inwardly. But then finally, there is this mention of men excusing and uh, and accusing. It says themselves, I prefer translating it as one another. Men excusing and accusing one another. They have the law in their hearts, their conscience agrees, and as a result of that, they excuse and they accuse one another. What, what that indicates is an active engagement with the concept of law. Look at this man, one says. He's guilty of committing a crime, accusing one another. Or else, Paul says, excusing, which perhaps is more common, especially today. They are aware of the crime, and yet they excuse it in another or even in themselves. And as they do this, they are merely demonstrating their own sense of morality and of God's law, which is what they're doing all the time. Society, any society is always filled with this sort of thing, excusing or else accusing one another. You see it today. Even the atheist of today has his morality. He's constantly asserting the injustice of certain things. His own sense of right and wrong, even though he has no basis, even though he denies the possibility of morality by denying the existence of God. And yet, all the while, every time he excuses or else accuses someone, what he is doing unwittingly is just proving Paul's point here, that he, even the Gentile atheist, possesses a law. It isn't exactly the same law the Jew possesses, It isn't the law of Moses in the written words of Scripture. And so he doesn't find his law in Scripture, but nevertheless, he constantly demonstrates by his actions and his words and his thoughts, his consciousness of the law. And so he is, to sum it up, this Gentile, this atheist, whatever you want to call him, he's a law unto himself. That is, the law he finds is not on the pages of Scripture in the words of the mouth of Moses or Jesus Christ, but he finds it in himself. He is a law unto himself. The law that governs him and that gives him a sense of the justice or injustice of certain actions that he finds in the world. That law he finds in himself. And yet we also see by the last phrase of verse 15 that even he seems to know he doesn't keep it. Otherwise, why all the accusation and the excusing of sin? 
In truth, the Gentile, like the Jew, fails to live up to the standard that he has and that he knows. And it is by that standard that he will be judged. The Gentile will not be judged by the law he does not possess, the law of Moses. But he will be judged by the one he has and by his failure to keep that law that he is aware of by nature. The general contents of the law inscribed upon his very nature. But finally, in verse 16... Paul concludes, having wrapped up and answered the two objections, he concludes the thought which he expressed in verse 12, uh, the various expressions of justice on the last day to the one without the law, to the one under the law, and then speaking of all the like and uh, referring to the day of judgment, he asserts two things about that day for both. One is that God will judge the secrets of men. But wait a second, you say. Hasn't all the talk here been about what a man does? Not what he thinks, but what he does. Yes, it has. Men will be rendered, a rendering will will occur unto men by what they've done. But do you realize even your motivations and your inward thoughts will condemn you? Jesus says as much. Every careless word you will answer for on the last day. And so Paul is not undoing his prior point when he says God will judge the secrets of men. He is in fact strengthening it. He is saying that God's judgment is full and thorough and always according to truth. And because that is so, it is against sin in every form, which includes even uh, the inner motivations and the thoughts and the desires of the inward man. On that day, the day of wrath, men will be laid bare. Nothing will uh, will escape the notice of God or his scrutiny. But the second assertion, and I want to close with this thought, is that God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. He is asserting two things here. One is that Jesus Christ is the judge, which we saw last time from Matthew 25. It's Jesus who will come in glory and in judgment on the last day, but also in salvation for the believer. But it's actually the phrase... According to my gospel that deserves our attention and that becomes my closing thought. According to my gospel. Jesus Christ will judge every man, the secrets of every man. Paul is asserting this according to his gospel. And what he's actually saying is that all of this talk of judgment beginning in chapter 1 verse 18 is according to the gospel he was entrusted to preach. Chapter 1, verse 1. It accords with it. It is included in it. In other words, it would be a mistake to take this section about judgment and to say, Paul isn't preaching the gospel just yet. He'll get there eventually. Come to chapter 3, verse 21, and you'll see it. This is just the prelude. Not so, Paul is saying. I'm preaching the gospel already. This too is part of the gospel I, am, uh, I was committed to preach. This is something that accords with it. It's part of it. It belongs in the same discussion. Paul is already preaching the gospel. And that is because the preaching of the gospel includes the fullness of the work of Christ. It includes every aspect. The fact that salvation has been committed to him. But also judgment. And how often you find Jesus himself referring to this in the Gospels. Both things, beloved, are his unique possession. And we fail to preach and we fail to believe the Gospel fully unless we include both aspects. 
judgment and salvation. Christ the Savior, Christ the Judge. Let me ask you, is our theology big enough to contain both as we assert the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are we prepared as a Christian congregation to sit under a preaching of the gospel that includes both aspects of his Lordship? Again, his salvation, but also his judgment and his justice. Or let me put it like this. Since Paul makes the point personal, did you notice that? He says, my gospel. Not that it was his unique possession or his version of it, but he's saying, this is something that's personal to me. And so I'll ask you, does your view of the gospel include this? Does it include the day of wrath? Is it included in what you call my gospel? That is my understanding of the gospel, my view of it. Is there a place in it for the wrath and the judgment of God? I'll close with those thoughts. We will continue to consider them uh, in the weeks to come. But for now, let us come uh, to the table.